One more time, uh, welcome to Four Corners. We're really, really glad that you're here. So a few years ago, uh, I was having one of those months where everything seemed to go wrong. Um, have you ever had one of those? It, it lasted for a, a good while. I said a month, it was really six. But anyway, um, one of the things that happened was, Jill and I had two vehicles at the time, and one of the things that happened was both of our cars were on the, uh, on the Blitz um, at the same time. Um, and so we had one that was going, but the air wasn't working, and the other one just needed to go in the shop. When that happened, my parents called me, um, unknowing what all was going on, and they said, hey, would you meet us in Kentucky? We have some friends we're meeting there, and we'd like to hang out for a while. We'd love it if you could come down. And I tried to you know, honor my parents, do that sort of thing. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I committed before I remembered, I don't have a car to go. So we were at staff meeting, and I said to the folks there, I said, um, hey, I've, I've got this crazy thing. I'm going to try to do this weekend, but I don't know if I'm going to do it or not. And, and so somebody said, Ben, you could borrow my car. Now, that makes me nervous because I'm one of those guys that doesn't mind loaning stuff out. I really don't. Um, if I got stuff, you're welcome to borrow it. Now, you'll have to sign in blood for it, but you're welcome to borrow my stuff. But I don't really like to borrow stuff because I feel extra extra responsible to like take care of other people's stuff. This, this trend I have may have started when I was a kid and we would go on vacation and we rarely stayed in a hotel. But if we did, my mom had this crazy notion that we had to leave the hotel in better shape than we found it. And so when we would go to check out, we would make the beds, wipe down the bathtubs, you know, clean up, fold the towels, the whole bit. So she kind of built into us, if it belongs to other people, take care of it, and you don't borrow stuff unless you absolutely have to. So I borrowed this car, and I drive it down to Kentucky, and it was a much newer car than any car that we had. It was very nice. And I thought, wow, this, this is, it was a Chevy, and it kind of well, made me feel great about American cars for a little while. So it was a great car, and I'm driving this car, and I go to the place where we're all meeting, and I pull in, and I don't see a parking spot in the close parking lot. So I go to the next parking lot, and I pull in. It's gravel, and I'm like, oh, i got to be careful. So I'm going really slow, and I see a spot, and I go to turn, but I didn't notice that there was a, well, a boulder. It was a big rock about this big on the ground outlying the road, and I cut too sharp, and I hear a sound that makes my heart drop. <sighs> Scrape right, un right near the undercarriage of that relatively six-month new car, six-month-old car. And it was white except for where I had scratched it. It was different shades of brown and gray and black and whatever the undercoloring is. And my, I just felt absolutely terrible. I thought about not coming home. I thought, what would it look like if I just went a different way? Anyway, I came home and, you know, obviously what happened was I called my wife right away and I said, we have got to get our cars fixed. And she's like, why are you so urgent? I'm like, because I have wrecked this car. So anyway, we, we get it fixed. And I, when I take it to the guy to get it fixed, I'm like, you have to be extra, extra good on this job. So I called the person immediately and said, look, uh, I am very sorry. We're going to take care of it. Like, don't worry about it. We got insurance. No, I'm going to take care of this because that's just the way I am. And while they were fixing it, I went and had them fix a couple of other little marks and do a little couple other things and detail the vehicle as well because I wanted to take care of their stuff even more than I want to take care of my stuff. We've been talking about this idea of mine, and there's one overarching concept that really fits here. It's the idea of stewardship. God gives us the amazing privilege to manage his stuff. A steward is a person who manages stuff that belongs to other people. It literally comes from a word that means house rule or a house manager. 
Now, back in Bible days, like today, very rich people often had somebody who managed their money because they were too busy playing golf and riding in boats on the Sea of Galilee, I guess. And so they had other people manage their wealth, people who were skilled, had the ability, and it freed them up, those rich people, to um, enjoy their other pursuits, do their thing. And Jesus talked a lot about these stewards who didn't own the possessions, but they managed them for the benefit and towards the agenda of the person who did own those resources. And he loved to tell stories or parables about them. And one of them is found in your Bible in Luke chapter 16. It is the strangest of the parables about stewards. I read this one, and every time I read it, it makes me go, "Uh what's going on here? Because it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds counterintuitive to our culture, and it sounds counterintuitive to the church. Now, often in the Bible, things sound counterintuitive to the culture, but like God's people, like the church, the people that live in the light, we're supposed to get it. But this is one of those where everybody does like the little puppy, turns their head to the side and kind of looks out and wondering what's going on. So Luke chapter 16, rather than setting you up too much, let's just dive right in. Here's what it says. Jesus told his disciples is how this story begins. Now, this is interesting because this is not Jesus simply teaching to the crowd. He did that a lot. The scope of this parable is given to those who are connected to Jesus. So what this means is if you're here today and you're connected to Jesus by the grace of God given to you because of the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection, you're a part of the audience of this story, okay? So Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager or steward was accused of wasting his possessions, Now, at this point, every disciple of Jesus who was listening leaned in, and they kind of knew where this story was going to go. Because when a steward wastes the possessions of the owner, that steward is no longer a steward. He's kicked out. They even had a thing called debtor's prison that lasted, well, in some parts of the world still exists, that lasted all the way from this time, preceding this time, all the way through the Middle Ages, all the way up into our modern time, where if you could not manage your debts, you went to prison and you basically became what was called an indentured servant. You worked off your debt, all right? So they're kind of expecting the story to go this way. So he called him in and asked him, the manager called in the manager, uh, the owner called in the manager and asked him, What is this I hear about you? And then the words, give an account of your management. It's your job. I want you to give an account. Because you cannot be manager any longer. And this sets up the tension of the story. Every good story has a bit of conflict. And this particular tension is this manager facing his owner in an accountable situation. And he hasn't been doing the best job in the world. What's he going to do? Now, here's where it gets interesting. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? What shall I do now? Now, this is interesting. That word now is a time-sensitive word. Now. What shall I do now? Often when Jesus told parables, they had very obvious implications for the here and now, how we should treat each other, wisdom we should understand. But beyond just the immediate now, very often in the parables, almost always, there is a spiritual truth that's about to be revealed that doesn't just relate to here and now. It hearkens all the way into then, into eternity. And there are spiritual truths that flow from a character, the character of God, 
that never changes that hearken all the way into the present reality. And that's what Jesus is about to do. And the manager in this story has an emotion where the immediacy of his situation is pressing on him so seriously. And I'm going to tell you what happens in a second. But first, I want to remind you what we're doing in this series called Mine. We're not talking in this series about something I want from you. What we're talking about is something I, as a pastor, and this staff and our leadership have been praying for you. Not what we want from you, what we want for you. Sometimes people come to me and they say, Ben, we would like for you to go a little bit deeper in the Scripture. And today we're doing that. We're going a little bit deeper in the Scripture. Because as a pastor, I don't want you to be ignorant of a very obvious dynamic the Bible is crystal clear about. And yet it's connected to a subject that for many of us, we have emotional hangups about. When we talk about money and stewardship and church and spirituality, there's an awful lot of background noise in the minds of many of us. A lot of background noise. For some of us, there's just raw embarrassment. Because we look at our situation and we say, maybe we haven't managed our situation perfectly well. And for some of us, there's real embarrassment there. Uh, maybe overloaded in debt or too much credit cards. For some of us, there's embarrassment not because of what we did, but because circumstances created a situation where we don't feel like we have all that we want or all that we could have or, or we're not in the situation financially where we'd like to be. And it's not the direct result of anything we chose, but somebody did something to us, a business shut down, a company downsized, something like that. And, but there's still sometimes embarrassment. Some of us have been in religious environments or have watched it on the news where we've seen well, just monkey business happened in the church connected to money. But one thing that I've discovered as a pastor, and this is, this is so interesting to me, often the very people who want us to go deeper in the Bible, deeper in spiritual things, there's a whole segment of their Bible that gets avoided. And it takes an awful lot of effort to avoid this subject in the Bible, the subject of money and the theology of money and what God wants us to know about money, because this is true, Jesus spoke about money and possessions and stuff more than any other subject, more than he talked about prayer, more than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about hell. He talked about this stuff. And yet there's a whole segment of Christians because of the noise going on in their head that avoids this whole segment of their Bibles that talks about money. And honestly, as a pastor, that breaks my heart. Because I know what happens when people ignore a portion of God's word. What that means is some segment of their life is not experiencing the blessing of God. Now, when I encounter somebody like who's doing that in their sexual life, they don't have biblical sexual integrity. I know without knowing anything about their story, just that one piece, that in the area of intimacy and relationships, there is damage being done and there isn't freedom and full expression within the boundaries that God wanted, it actually ties their hands from experiencing the intimacy God wants for them. It actually robs them of the joy of sexual intimacy that God wanted for people. I know when people have issues in sexuality against God's word, it binds them. And I know when people have issues with money, it binds them. And as a pastor, my heart for you is that you would experience all the blessing and freedom that God wants for you in money. So your entire Old Testament has these beautiful pockets of, of treasure about how to manage money, what to do with money. And this church has an amazing track record of helping people get ahead on God's agenda with money for their personal lives. 
But sometimes because people have this background thing playing in their mind, they don't take advantage of those opportunities. They even, like if they're reading their Bible and they come to a passage, like they'll read it, but it doesn't penetrate. I've even known people who were honest with me and said, I skip over the passages that deal with that stuff. I understand why. See, the Bible tells us, this is a part of our going deeper, that the number one competitor for people's hearts against God is not the devil. That may surprise you. The number one competitor for people's heart isn't a political agenda that seems to run counter to God. The number one competitor for people's hearts isn't the beach or the mountains when the weather gets nice. It isn't an illicit relationship. Jesus made it very clear that the number one competitor squeezing out the real estate of our heart that is occupied by God is not any of that stuff. It's money and stuff. It's possessions. So much that Jesus said this. He said that where your treasure is, your heart will be there. Now listen to me, friends. This is deep stuff because an understanding, your personal theology of money, your personal philosophy of money impacts almost everything you do. It impacts, like the video intro says, it impacts how you experience happiness. I've almost decided that we're going to bar television from my children. Not because it's so sinful, explicitly. But when they watch advertisements, they want everything they see. Now, my kids are reasonably well-fed. They are. And they wear pretty nice clothes. And we have nice stuff. We have an Xbox now. We don't have the new black Xbox with the uh, you know, DVI cord. We have the old three-prong approach. And that is unacceptable, if you didn't know, in our house. <laughs> the one we have works fine. But it's unacceptable. The hard drive is too small. It's not quite as fast. And if you have the new one, Dad, they tell me. If you press the button, it almost instantly switches screen. But in the old model, there's about a half second delay. (laughs) I get sick of commercials because as my kids engage culture, their list of wants go up. Not so bad. But here's the other thing I've noticed, and it happens to many of us. As our list of wants go up, something happens. We begin to think of them not in terms of wants, but in terms of need. And also, as our list of wants go up, so also goes our sense of disappointment or dissatisfaction or lack of happiness or lack of, lack of a sense that our life has meaning and value. It's all connected to this stuff thing. And in the background of that very obvious dynamic that exists in this room, in our culture, and in the audience Jesus was talking to, Jesus tells this story about the manager who hasn't managed not his stuff well, hasn't managed the stuff that belonged to somebody else well. And the manager calls him in and says, we're going to have to deal with this issue. So the manager said to himself, verse number three, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I like what he says here. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm a lover, not a fighter, I can imagine him saying. I, I don't have what it takes. I'm ashamed to beg. This guy is having an honest conversation. His circumstances have changed. And now he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's taking quick, sober judgment. I can't dig ditches. I don't want to beg. So verse 4, I know what I'll do. So that when, here's our other time word. We have now and we have when. Some future point. So that when 
not now, but in the future, so that when I've lost my place. Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Now let's just pause for a second. This man realized he had a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. Between the now and the when, when it ultimately comes down, I've got this little bit of window. What do you do when you have a little bit of stuff, a little bit of time? What do you do when you have a little bit of opportunity and a little bit of stuff? This is the challenge that this manager had to manage. And it's in this story that Jesus is trying to teach something very deep that runs to the foundation of our daily existence. What do you do when you have a little bit of stuff and a little bit of time? When you live between the now and when, the now and then. I know what I'll do, he says, so that when that time comes, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtor and he says, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil. Now, we don't use olive oil like that. It's not a matter of currency, but back in the day, this was a big deal. 250 olive trees worth of olive oil. Massive bill. Listen to what the manager does. The manager told him, "Uh, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Cut it right smack in half. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? And then he's going to go on a little journey, going along and finding people who owed the master, the one whose stuff he's managing, owes the money. And he's slashing and dashing. It's like, a, well, it's like a blue light special back there in Galilee. Everything's on sale. All your debt on sale. Pennies on the dollar. How much do you owe? 900. Well, give me 450. What do you think the guy who owed 900 gallons thought. I bet the exchange went something like this. How much do you owe? 900. Make it 450, but I need you to write the check now. If you can write the check now or bring me the oil now, then what we'll do is <laughs> we'll just call it even. I can imagine when that exchange was over, the guy that owed the 900 gallons walked away saying something like, oh man, thank you. That, that's amazing. Thank, thank you. Uh, and by the way, if you ever need anything, don't be afraid to call on me. I really appreciate what you did for me. So he calls the second one in and he says, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill and make it 800. If you can pay right now, go ahead and make it good. 800, we'll give you a discount, one fifth, one fifth off, make it 800. Now, I can imagine that conversation went something like this. A thousand, make it 800. Oh, wow, really? You would do that? Yes, I would. If you could pay right now, I'll go ahead and take the minimum, and we'll all call it even. Thank you so much. Listen, if you ever need anything, don't be afraid to call on me. I really appreciate how you've taken care of me today. So verse (laughs) 8. This is where it gets interesting. This is where everybody goes, hmm. All right, so the master commended the dishonest manager. Wait, wait. The master, people in Jesus' day knew that every parable had a character in it that represented God, and every parable had a character in it that represented them. 
And they're used to asking the question, which character in this story is God and which character in this story is me? And I'm assuming that by now they figured that the guy that owned everything was God because they knew they had a basic rudimentary theology of stewardship and finances and money that realized that everything belongs to God. We're just managers. At best, we're stewards of stuff that we don't own. Even the air we breathe is on loan to us. The very children we have don't belong to us. We steward them as gifts from God. Everything we have, even the money in our pockets, we were given gifts and opportunities by God to earn Everything belongs to God. I'm assuming that by now in this story, they realize that the owner was God, which makes the manager them. And then the master, the owner, commands the dishonest manager because he acted so shrewdly. He had a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity, and he leveraged them to bless people, to help people in a shrewd way. For the people of this world, Jesus said, now here's where it gets interesting. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. Jesus is talking to his disciples, people of the light, that's them. The shrewd manager, people of the world, a little dishonest, didn't do well. But when push comes to shove, he managed and leveraged his little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity for the benefit of other people. This gets interesting. Jesus says this, I tell you, here's the point, use worldly wealth to gain friends. Now, there's a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People, and nowhere in the book does Dale Carnegie tell you, nowhere, buy your friends. He doesn't do that. In fact, I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, but it gets kind of close. He's saying, use your wealth to connect with people. Use your wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, and this is where it gets very interesting and strange, you'll be welcomed into internal dwellings. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What are you going to do with your little bit of time? What are you going to do with your small window of opportunity. In this story, Jesus is trying to get his original hearers, people of the light, and us today who are also followers of Jesus, to realize that we live in the gap. We live right here at the intersection of where now meets when, or now meets then. That's where we live, where now and then collide. And in that window of opportunity, for many of us, we have a little bit of time and we have a little bit of opportunity. And how are we going to leverage that stuff so that it makes not just a temporary change? That was staged. We are so good here that we have amazing... Wait till you see the pyrotechnics later. I felt as I was leaning on it earlier that it was moving. There we go. Can you guys see that now? I have three more things to write, and I have this hidden desire to be published, and it's essential that that be there and satisfy my ego. What are you going to do when you have a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity? How are you going to leverage that? Someone in this parable is God. Someone in this parable is me. So is the point that we're supposed to be dishonest? No, of course not. The point is, is that sometimes people of the world are more shrewd than people of the light 
in understanding the gap, the tension between now and then. There are people who, by the way, think that this world is all there is. This story is letting us know that whatever you think the then or the when that's coming is, it's not simply dealing with this life only. That there is a when that's coming that stretches all the way into eternity. There are people who don't think about eternity. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe that everybody will spend eternity somewhere. And yet they understand this lesson of the steward who leverages the stuff he has to build relationships. Knowing that at some point in this life, difficulties are going to come and friendships nurtured, supported, encouraged through the leveraging of stuff are likely to benefit you when your when comes. Jesus in this parable is trying to stretch the when out into eternity. And he's trying to do something that I think is elusive and difficult and hard to understand. And yet it is so true. It's essential to any theology or philosophy of money that you operate in your home if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a person of the light. And that is that what we do here and now really does echo in eternity. That you and I can leverage our little bit of time and our little bit of opportunities and not just impact here and now, but to impact eternity. This is the strange visual Jesus is painting. That for those of us who are children of the light, who leverage our little bit of time, our little bit of opportunity that we have, a little bit of resources that we have, to, to gain friendships, to build relationships, that image is that when your when comes, not in this life, but in the future life, in eternity, you'll come into heaven and people will walk up to you and they'll say things like, thank you. Thank you for leveraging your little bit of opportunity, your little bit of resources, your little bit of time for making a difference in my life. You used your very worldly stuff that will rust, decay. It's fleeting. You won't take it with you to the grave. Naked you came to this world, naked you will leave. You used your very temporary worldly stuff, but you used it to make an eternal difference. I think about folks in this church who, whether they knew it or not, they were connecting the dots in the way that Jesus hoped his hearers would connect the dots. That you and I can make a practical difference in eternity by leveraging our very limited worldly stuff right now. You and I can lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. There are people in this church that have done that. I think about Jeremy Furness, who used his vehicle on Sunday mornings to pick up our church trailer, which is a little old and decrepit, and, and most of us who pulled the trailer have more than one scratch or two on our vehicles uh, because that's just the nature of that kind of work. And yet he used his time his energy, his vehicle pulling a heavy trailer to pull signs. And then he would come to church early and drop them off near the entrances so that people coming to our church could follow the signs in. So that if you and I invited a guest, they would be able to follow the signs all the way into the parking lot into the front door. Worldly stuff that's temporary will go away. You will not take it to heaven, with, but made a practical difference. There are people in this church who have opened their homes and they've said, you can have a small group here. And they've allowed us to bring mud on our shoes onto their carpets <laughs> and leave stains and uh, spill drinks. That's happened um, you know, in their house. 
But their idea was that they had this house, this little bit of opportunity, this little bit of time to make a difference here and now for eternity. And so they've said to us, you can use our house. There's a couple in this church who allows the staff to use their vacation home to go down and recharge and spend some time with our family. Because their idea was, it's just a house. I can use it to make an eternal difference and encourage and bless people. Foundational to a healthy theology of money. The kind of healthy theology that brings freedom to your life is this basic understanding. That you can leverage temporary things, limited opportunity, limited time to make an eternal difference. You can stretch what you have here and now into eternity. There's only three things that'll last forever. God, that's what he tells us. God and all the stuff associated with him. God, his word, his character. The, the scripture tells us that the church will last forever. Maybe not this church, but the church of Jesus will last forever. There will always be a group of people that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and experiencing the change that God brings to them. There will always be. And the word of God. The word of God, the church, and then finally, people. The Bible says that people will last forever. And as a church, we believe that everybody spends eternity somewhere. And many of us, in fact, we wouldn't be here if people didn't leverage the little bit that they have here and now, understanding that we're in the gap, but there's a payday. There's a day of accounting coming, and we want it to make a difference. So people open their homes. They use their vehicles. They give of their sweat equity on church Sunday mornings to set up staging and set up kids' area. They take the temporary that they have, sometimes all the way down to their emotions, this very body, and they leverage that stuff to make a difference. What this means is that if you're a person who has ever felt the pull of not having enough, have ever felt the challenge of thinking, does it matter? Am I making a difference? There's a tendency to look at this life only and think, I'm not sure it really matters. I'm not sure my little bit will make a difference. But Jesus says through this story that you don't have the shrewdness of the manager that understands you can leverage the temporary. And in this case, stuff that doesn't even belong to you. It all belongs to God. And in doing so, you can make eternal friendships. You can make eternal impact. This is a huge Huge theological concept. Everywhere Jesus talks about money in the Bible, and he talks about it more than anything else, this current of it all belongs to God, but you can leverage what he's blessed you with to bless others, it's all the way there. And sometimes, otherwise, very deep spiritual people want to avoid this. I guess it's because they're wounded. Maybe they're ignorant of what the Bible has to say. Maybe they don't understand just how much God puts into this, that the breath he gives you every day you live isn't for you alone. It isn't for me alone. But we're to leverage it, not just for this side of eternity, not just for our own very minute goals, but for kingdom perspective. So there are people in this room who have written large checks, large for them, and sacrifice to make a difference. When they do that, it isn't because somehow they have more than anybody else. You would be surprised, and next week I'm going to show you, you'd be surprised sometimes at just 
what motivates somebody in this congregation to give and how they give. It isn't so much that they have all this excess. The people around you who make this church happen, just to be completely honest with you. Now, if you don't like honesty, I can't help you here, all right? It's not that they have so much excess. It's that they believe that when they give, it makes a difference here and now, but also in eternity. So they write the checks that they're able to write. They give the time that they're able to give. They open their homes in the way that they're able to open their homes. They extend generosity of attitude and forgiveness to other people as they can because they believe it makes a difference. They've tapped in to a very deep artesian well of spiritual truth and knowledge and reality that says this life is temporary. We have only a little bit of time and only a small window of opportunity. And yet we can make a big difference. That's why when I preach like this, I want you to hear me and let the words of God sink deep into your heart because this truth will bring significant freedom to you. You won't be pulled to the short counterfeit this worldly oriented goals that advertising tries to put on you. You'll have conversations in your home about money that don't sound like arguments and how are we going to manage this debt and which credit cards should we pay off first. You'll start having conversations like this. How are we going to make a difference for eternity with our money? And I know this. There probably aren't two in ten couples in this church. There aren't two in ten people in this church that have had that conversation yet. And the fact that we haven't had that conversation in your home, you haven't, at your dinner table with your spouse or your kids, means that there's a whole segment of spiritual vitality and freedom that hasn't been opened to you. The blessings that God showers on people who ask this question. How are we going to leverage what God has blessed us with to make an eternal difference? Well, the Bible is just full of this stuff. Of course, people have gotten crazy with it and promised that if you wrote God a check for $10, he'd give you a million. Of course, that, that's crazy. That's not the, and yet the truth of the scripture is, is that when you approach your money with this attitude, God, how do I leverage it to make an eternal difference? God does open up the windows of heaven. And the Bible says that he rains upon you a blessing that you can't contain. And when your eyes have been turned away from the counterfeit goals to the eternal goals, there's a satisfaction and a completeness that comes in us. And there's a trust And I want this for you. The happiest people I know, the deepest spiritual people I know are not those who simply know a lot about the Bible and can talk everybody else in their small group under the table. It's the people that have leveraged, like this shrewd manager, their little bit of opportunity and their little bit of time to make an eternal difference. What would it look like if you went home and you had a conversation with yourself if you're single? Or or if you're engaged with your girlfriend or if you're married with your husband, with your wife, and you said, how are we going to manage our little bit of time and our little bit of opportunity to make an eternal difference, to gain friends for the ultimate when that's coming our way? I think it'd be a game changer in your life. Some of you will decide to pour into this church. Others of you will decide to pour outside. Largely, it doesn't matter as long as you're following God. But I've never met a spiritually vibrant person that hasn't on some level taken this discussion seriously. It just doesn't happen. Do you realize that a lot of the mean Christians you meet, like the mean ones, the ones that know a lot of stuff, but they talk nasty, like you met them, right? 
We got a couple here. When we find them, we try to ease them, you know, into some other area of ministry. Um, bless them, send them on their way. Um, but half of them, I'm just being told, almost always, friends, this is just Ben's subjective observations. Almost always, there's this massive gaping hole around a healthy theology of money. Jesus said the number one competitor for your heart and mine would be stuff. And when we let stuff crowd him out, we don't experience the joy that comes from following our Savior. I would be no kind of pastor if I told you about the freedom that could be offered in Christ in sexual intimacy and relationships if I didn't also tell you about money. I would be no kind of pastor if I simply brought you to the cross to receive salvation and explained what wonder grace is. If I didn't also tell you on the other side of the cross, there's a life of meaning of purpose that doesn't die when you die. It has impact on the other side. My, my small group, man, they have just, they've blessed my soul over this last quarter. We get together on Thursdays, every other Thursday. Those of us that make it, you guys know who you are. I'm still mad at you from last Thursday. Um, we get together, I'm joking, they know that. We, we get together on Thursday. And you know what we're doing now? We're trying to leverage, how do we, how do we take our testimony, how God has worked in our life, and tell that story with passion and clarity so that it impacts other people, not to be impressed by us, but so that they believe a life with Jesus could be possible. So we're working on our testimonies because we believe that God's given us a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity. And we're talking about deep things. What a shame it would be to do all of that and then leave out what Jesus said is the number one competitor for your heart, money and stuff. What would it look like if this week, if you looked in the mirror, you sat across the dinner table from your spouse, you talked to your girlfriend, if you're in college, high school, you talked to yourself, talked to your parents, talked to your small group leader, and you said, I would like to take my little bit of opportunity and my little bit of time, and I'd like to leverage it in a shrewd way for the biggest kingdom impact possible. Now, some of us are going down to the Smoky Mountain Children's Home and investing some of our vacation time. Others of us are writing a check bigger than, than we thought we could to, to, to make that happen. Of course it satisfies us and gives us a sense of comfort. And, but more than that, it makes an investment that pays off through eternity. Listen, if you volunteer in this church, if you give in this church, not one hour, not one dime has been wasted when you consider eternity. Not one. Everything you've done is unto God impacts people. God and his word, the church, and the people will last forever. When you make an investment in those things, it's a good investment every time. Next week, I'm going to show you practically how some of this works out. For some of you, like accounting types, you're going to be like, you know, salivating. It's the only time we're going to hear you say amen. Um, you know, you always sit there like this. I'm not raising my hand. I get it. No problem. It's all, it's all good. Some of you, like, you're not wired that way, but you're going to get, like, just really great information about the way people around here have done their thing. Some of you, God will use it as an opportunity to push you. Some of you are so fearful already and so wounded, you've already decided not to come. And all we're going to do is open up God's Word. I'm going to show you some of the ways it works in this church. You're going to find it very helpful. Don't let fear or woundedness keep you away from tapping into this amazing well of spiritual freedom. I want that for you more than I want anything from you. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's take a few next steps together as a congregation.
I've talked about this amazing God who blesses us with stuff that we haven't earned. You can have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. It's called grace. You don't earn it. So if you want to accept this Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the very first time today, that is the one who leads your life and the forgiver of your sins, uh, you can do that. You can check the box as an act of faith. In a moment, we're going to pray. And then we'll send you some information about what a life with Christ can look like. Next step B, a lot of us in this church have gone public with our faith. We've said we're not ashamed of Jesus. We're, we're so amazed by what he's been able to do with our lives. And we were, you know, going in the wrong way and he turned us around. And we just want you guys to know that. If you want to get baptized, you can check the box. It's a big, big day around here. And somebody from our church will contact you and make uh, your questions uh, will become clear. They'll answer your questions and they'll give you the details. All right, next step C. I wonder if anybody would be honest. Now listen. I know this is an intimate subject, but I wonder if anybody, be honest, would say, I have some work to do to get my finances under control. Like, like, you know, you're just, you're upside down. And a lot of it maybe is your own doing. We have an amazing track record helping people here, but we can't help you. We can't help you if you don't tell us. And in this church, there's no shame. There's no guilt. We believe that wherever you are, if you turn towards Jesus, we just want to partner with you and start helping you walk towards him. We'll help you. Check the box. Let us help you. Now, we're not going to get out your check. What we're going to do is we're going to get broken systems fixed, give you some knowledge and some tools. All right? And some encouragement. Next step, D. I have, honesty here, I have some emotional baggage related to churches and money. Would you be honest about that today if that's you? Check that. And in a minute when we pray, why don't you just ask God, God, I don't know that I've plumbed the depths here. I've hit... Maybe some spiritual walls because of this emotion. And I'd like to just be free of that. I'd like you to heal my heart around money and stuff and the church. All right? Next step B. I have some work to do in order to get my giving under control. Like, you know, what, what you're going to do there. I'd encourage you this week, have that conversation. What are we going to do to make a difference from eternity? For eternity. What are we gonna, how are we going to leverage our little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity? to make a difference for eternity. If that's you, check the box. Let the staff rally around you and pray with you this week. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus. God, this week as I was, uh, as I was studying and praying, it's like you just displayed a, a slideshow of the people in the life of this church who've made a difference. God, I pulled just a couple of small examples, but literally there are hundreds of people who have touched my life, touched my kids, my wife's life for eternity. Not because they loved us, but because they loved you. And they experienced freedom and joy in that. And God, the enemy wants nothing more than to rob us of our joy and our freedom. So God, I pray that today you would do what your word says. You would, ri- you would raise up a standard against the enemy. And you would let your truth penetrate and permeate every area of our heart. So God, where we are wounded, where we have bad experiences, God, I pray that um, that you would just heal that. God, for those that are making an ultimate decision about what to do with you and the role you play in their life, God, I pray that today they would decide that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Forgive my sins, Jesus. Lead my life. God, for those of us that need to get our finances under control. Give us the boldness to take steps and start walking towards you and honoring you in our stuff. And for those of us that need to grow in giving, God, it's just been an area of disobedience in our life. I pray that your sweet Holy Spirit would come and do its nudging. 
We pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God and the giver of all things. Amen.